I know my uh, topic online was a little kind of cryptic because, to be honest, I was running really late with getting all this done, and I kind of came up with the title, and then I had to write a message that fit it. So <laughs> they're like, "We need titles, and we need them now." Okay, here it is. So, um, so the title and description were just kind of like nebulous, kind of like, "Hey, it might be about this." Um, I will say though, right from the start, um, I did have an idea when I came up with that, but uh, wasn't exactly sure where I was going to end up with it, but. The topic today is not really directly related to preterism, even though it has it in the title. And it's not really direct, it's, not, it's more directed to the people who hold to preterism, but actually it's not just for those who hold to the doctrine of preterism. In fact, it's really an issue that could and should be the concern of every Christian. So while it is related to something that every Christian should hold, I couldn't really name the title of my, my lecture, Christianity's Great Dilemma, because then Gert, Glenn might get mad at me for his book title. So. Which if you haven't picked this up, make sure you do. He's got them out there. This is, everybody has to have this in their library. So, And uh, this morning I'm not going to be talking about any particular theological hot topic or doctrine or fringe belief that people hold on to, regardless of what Dan may imply about my lectures. Now, even though in past conferences I have spoke on some really odd and interesting topics, as Dan implied, um, <clears throat> today I'm going to be going to a much more down-to-earth topic, more of a general uh, Christian living type thing. It's going to be a little more preachy than teachy, um, which is why I stuck myself on Sunday morning, because this is where the preaching should go, I guess. Um, but it is something that's been on my heart for a few months now, and I hope in some ways you would find it helpful also. Now, in general, this is something that has popped up in conversations from time to time over the years. Actually, it's popped up a couple times in other lectures this weekend, and I'm like, gosh, stop going there. That's what I'm going to be talking about. But ho fortunately, nobody went into a lot of, a lot of depth or detail. Um, and it was, uh, but it was just a couple months ago that this kind of came into my heart, so I thought I would go ahead and discuss it here. See, a couple months ago, Mike Sullivan came and spoke at our church at Moran on the Sunday morning. And he gave his message on the gleanings from Revelation. At one part around the middle of the message, he blurted out something that kind of put me on the path to this message today. And in the subsequent, subsequent weeks from that, it kept popping up. Again, it was one of those things where it, it would pop up in conversations and they would say, ah, oh, maybe this, you know, kind of like a confirmation. Maybe I should go this route. Because I wasn't sure. I thought, you know, is this something that really needed to be said? But it just kept popping up. And again, it popped up this weekend. So I thought, okay. Maybe, maybe that's confirmation, or maybe that's just telling me that it's already been covered. I don't know. But Mike was making a modern application of a point. He was talking about Revelation 2, 2 through 4, and he made a passing comment that caught my attention. The verse itself says, I know your works, your toil, and your patience, endur your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, Mike had entitled this section of his lecture, uh, Read Not Just for Your Mind, But for Your Heart. He didn't spend a lot of time on this point because he had a lot of information to cover, and so he sped right through it. Uh, but it was his closing remarks in this section that had really pierced my heart at that time. But before looking at that, let's look at this piece of scripture a little as to what he was going through uh, and expound on a little bit more. 
Now, looking at this section of scripture in more of a modern way, we can get a kind of general idea of how this might have been an issue back then. In striving for purity, for truth, and justice, in a time of turmoil and religious thinking, this church could not bear the evil around them. They challenged and dealt with people who were false apostles, false teachers, those who were confusing the faith that had been handed down. They had become very strong apologists in their day. They fight for truth. They fight for the good name of Christ. And they fight without growing weary of doing so. They are strong defenders of the faith and for the name of Christ. And yet Christ himself has an issue with them. Now, if we stop and take a look at ourselves, I'm sure that there are some here listening who can relate. I read the Bible. I read it uh, sticking to the one-year plan as close as possible. I read it frequently. I study deep theology books and challenging teachings in an effort to confuse people. No, I mean, in an effort to <laughs> grasp more of what the Bible holds truth-wise. Compared to the average pew-sitter of the church today, I may be considered one of those deep-thinking, reading, scholarly types. The average person goes to church, and during the week, they rarely pick up their Bible. Their understanding is often weak. Their theology is often very disjointed and confused. They grasp little to nothing of the deeper treasures of God's Word. But that's not me. I study, I read, I dig, I debate, I argue, I charge against false teachings wherever they pop up on Facebook and YouTube. I'm a defender of the truth of the real gospel and I seek to smash false teaching wherever it rears its ugly head. This may be very similar to what is being condemned here in the first century of the church and Christ could easily have something against me too. And if you can relate to this, he may also have something against you likewise. We may have abandoned the first love that we had at, fir at first. We may strive to possess great knowledge and depth of scripture, but if we left our first love, what good are we? Of course, this leads us exactly into what 1 Corinthians 13 is telling us. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have love, I have nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Are we using this study and knowledge to show forth the love of Christ? Are we using it for love at all? This is where it was in the closing words from Mike that stuck, struck home with me. Mike was rattling off a similar situation about studying this and debating that and this topic and answering this critic with this verse that you read in the Bible or using this to teach this particular doctrine, things along that line. And then after listing off all of these study and fighting for the truth issues that we do, Mike hypothetically spoke for Christ, who may come back and say, similar to this section of Scripture, no, I don't want you to teach right now. I don't want you to do the work of an apologist. I want you to get on your knees and worship me with the knowledge you have just learned. Let's start there before doing all of these other things with the knowledge of the word that you have. Now, I could easily relate to Mike's scenario. So often these days when I read scripture or when I read deep theology books, it tends to bring forth an attitude of using my study as a way to find more ammunition against, for which to debate with or to defend the truth especially for this new truth that I just discovered with whatever I just read. While instead, I most definitely need to spend more time simply being still before God and basking in the love and knowledge that he bestows through his word. Instead of reading it and always being on the lookout for how it might be used to apply to so-and-so's situation or to respond to this debate over here, I should be reading it and seeing what it says and how it applies to me.
How can I apply this to my life? How can I use this to mold me more in the image of Christ? And like I said, this is not just an issue with preterists, but with most any Christian who seeks to stand for truth. It tends to be the case with anyone who is reading and studying beyond the normal, minimal studying of the average Sunday Christian pew-sitter. It is always an issue when we, when we think we begin to learn something more than usual. Now, I've mentioned this in messages before, but I remember when I came into the Reformed faith back in the 80s, and I felt like now I was aware of some deeper biblical theology that most non-Reformed friends had no clue about. I had an inside knowledge of this old theology long since forgotten by most, and it goes beyond the simple, easy Christianity of those around me. It begins to make you feel special, more knowledgeable than most others. It affects the way you deal with others in theological discussions. It can even go so far as to make you wonder if these other people are truly saved, since they don't know this stuff. And therefore, the, that increases the need to hit them up with it. This attitude came around and slapped me in the face a couple decades ago. I had a close friend that uh, I had known before I was reformed, and we were good friends, and then we you know, married and separated a little bit, and then I became reformed here and there. So when we would talk, you know, I was always talking about the faith and stuff like that. Well, a friend of his made a com- I guess talked to him and then made a comment to me because I got in- engaged in kind of a debate with this guy. He said, uh, yeah, you know that your friend said that he doesn't really want to talk religion with Jeff anymore because Jeff always talks down to him and kind of feels like he's belittling him. That was kind of a shocker because, you know, it's like, mm, that's not good. So it made me step back and rethink my haughty attitude at the time. I had to learn to not take that approach, to try to be gentler and more tender-hearted to others. It is obviously something that needs to be stayed on top of, too, because next thing you know, you're back to the old ways with different people under different topics. Then we move into deep theological issues like preterism, and we begin learning. And it's not hard to find yourself thinking you have new answers that other people don't, and then again begin to feel like it's your job to correct the error of others. It all really boils down to an issue of pride. Pride can so easily rear its ugly head wherever we think we have something or know something or it causes us to have an attitude when we talk to others. Pride also causes a sort of amnesia, it seems, because it baffles me at times to realize just how easily I will have forgotten where I was in my understanding on this topic like the day before. The day before I learned it. Before I learned this new position, I was like those who I am now arguing with who don't understand it. How often in these discussions do any of the parties involved truly have a conscious and clear grasp of their current place in their understanding, remembering how they got there, and especially remembering where they came from? Now, I can't say I consciously stop and think to myself about my current understanding and how probably not too long before that day I was ignorant and held to a totally different position, and I thought I was correct in that position at the time. But it is something we should keep in mind. Oftentimes, I'm too quick to just attack someone's ignorance or what I perceive to be error, not considering that this perceived error may be a truth that I will hold tomorrow, because my position constantly changes as God grants me additional understanding. But for today, rather than seeking to approach things in humility and seek to teach and open to be taught, I just pridefully attack, dismissing and belittling others along the way. That's why debating and arguing online doesn't work work much at all. Rarely are these discussions approached by parties who want to discuss and learn from one another. It is usually all about bullying our position upon someone else who we often do not see or treat as equal to us in the faith. 
our battles usually come down to an issue with pride versus humility. The amount of debating, arguing, and sheer ugliness that occurs each and every day among Christians, especially online in the modern social media world, is shocking. Sadly, many may not even see it as shocking because it seems to be the norm these days. And that is sad. Especially when we read the Bible and you find out the kind of traits of a Christian that is, are supposed to be displayed with each other. It becomes so easy to belittle the knowledge or ignorance of others while totally forgetting that the amount of knowledge is simply where they are in their walk with the Lord. In Romans, Paul instructs his hearers among these similar lines, saying, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God has measured out the faith of his people, and not everyone is on the same level in this area. To attack, argue, and belittle others is essentially to mock where God has them in their growth and knowledge. Now, I don't know about you, but until recently, I do not believe I really ever thought much along those lines. I never looked at my debating and attacking others as an attack on where God may have them. Paul goes on to say, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We all have different gifts, and when we attack one another, we may well be attacking their lack of having the same gift as we often have. Is that the way that we should be treating our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? How about this one? Are we doing what Paul instructs in this section? Love one another with brotherly affection? Outdo one another in showing honor? And similarly from Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to say I fail greatly in this area. Honestly, though, how can we tell anymore? How many Christians even begin to show honor to one another, enough to even know where they stand on the honor-other scale? How ought a Christian to live? According to Paul in dealing with the Romans, he states, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with others. Live in harmony with one another. It seems like such an alien concept if you read through most messages left on social media sites these days between Christians. And in reading these types of posts, how often might one walk away saying, wow, they were really honorable in their messages to each other. This phrase in the ESV translated live in harmony with one another can be understood a little differently as other translations show. Others translate it as maybe be of the same mind one towards another. The Syriac version makes it pretty clear what they intended to thought here would be when it translates that line as what ye think of yourselves, think also of the brethren. In other words, as John Gill puts it, Think of one another as equally interested in the love of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, blessed with the same spiritual blessings in him, and called in the same hope of your calling. And do not think of one another as being one richer or one riser. Do not value yourselves upon that. Again, the idea is we should not think of ourselves as higher, more gifted, more blessed, or of more authority than others. We should love all as equals, regardless of their places in life. This type of love, sadly, is rarely found amongst many Christians today. 
even though the Bible has quite a bit to say about love being an identifiable trait for the Christian, most anyone who reads the majority of these social media interactions between professing believers would be hard-pressed to see much love and this honor being present there. Instead, yes, everyone is wise in their own sight and seems to be on a crusade to bite, rip, and tear down these around them with name-calling and belittling speech. Where is the love? Where is the honor? Where is the humility? Where are those traits acknowledged as cornerstones to the Christian faith? Now, in the upcoming weeks, Dave will be preaching through 1 John, and so these verses I'm going to cover here may end up being totally wrong and interpreted differently. We'll see how he goes with that. But for now, let's just read these and consider them on the surface level, what John says about these traits of a Christian. But by this it is evident that who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can, <coughs> who has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love appears to be pretty important, as it is uh, at times, some seems to be John is making it like a... Uh, mark of true salvation in his messages at times. He had already laid out in his gospel writings just how important the trait of love is for your witness to those around you, stating, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. When we find ourselves interacting with other Christians in person or online, do we consciously attempt to love them as Christ has loved us? I cannot say that I've gave it much thought, honestly, at least not until recently. It's been months since I've engaged in heated discussions with anyone online. It is far better to take, this time, take that time and spend it with the Lord and let Him and His Word just work on my life personally. It is time to ask ourselves, which is more important, to work on our relationship with our Savior to let him change us and to seek to be more like him in as many ways as possible or to end up feeding our pride and seeking to squash those around us? Which trait is a better characteristic of the follower of Christ? To be quiet in love or to win a debate? How important is seeking humility in life to the Christian? Let's see what role humility plays through God's word. Many of these verses are quite familiar, but how often do we seek to apply them or live by them? The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Do we strike? Do we see, uh, strive to be lifted up by the Lord? If so, how important is humility to us? For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Are we striving daily to seek such a salvation from the Lord? It seems humility is important to achieving that. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. This holds so true, but like I said, just reading through many of the interactions between Christians online reveals more pride than love and brings more disgrace to the name of Christ than glory. In talking to the people in Isaiah 66, Yahweh tells of the type of person that he looks for. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
Again, when we read his word, are we doing so to just get through our daily reading obligations? Are we reading it to find answers for debate topics? Or are we reading to change our lives, to cause ourselves to tremble before the Almighty? Are we reading and studying to humble ourselves and grow in grace and fear of the Lord? For Proverbs tells us, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Now, Dave taught a few weeks ago and often in the past about how living in sin doesn't affect our salvation, but that sin has its consequences in this life, and it will affect us and those around us when we live that way. But Scripture says if we live in humility and in the fear of the Lord, we will live more abundantly, that we will be honored instead. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Paul often speaks of humility and living in a way that strives for and pursues unity. And while at his, at his time the whole Jew-Gentile struggle was the main issue that he was struggling with, I believe the application can likewise be seen as a need among the church today. Peter, too, espouses this character trait of humility. According to them, we should be striving and living like this. I urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Note that Paul refers to these traits as being those, as being that the way we should walk if we were to claim to be a Christian called of God. This should be one of the essential character traits that we present more often than not. How many people do you know today who would be a good representation of this? How many do you find discussing things online who would fit this description in their speech to others. The Bible speaks often against pride and often for humility, yet for a good majority of those who openly profess before men that they are followers of Christ, these traits are flip-flop. Instead, it is common to hear people speak the adage that God helps those who help themselves, yet no such view as this is found in Scripture. On the contrary, the Bible teaches the opposite. God helps those who humble themselves, those who are dependent on Him, not those who are arrogant, self-willed, and striving to live apart from him. That's why when we read the scriptures, we should be doing it not that we may fulfill our quota and not that we can be better prepared to not, in our knowledge to squash the enemy around us. We should be doing so to gain better insight of our Lord, his desires, and our place with him. We should understand our natural insignificance and be strengthened in our knowledge and dependency on him. Let us look at ways in which true humility may manifest itself in one's life. One way is when a man understands and acknowledges his true insignificance and sinfulness. Too often people rail against God, unsatisfied with his providential actions around them. But instead we must be like David who proclaimed, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Once we come to a realization of our place before the Almighty, we can be humbled before Him and be used by Him. We know and understand what we know and understand because God has given us that understanding and brought us to that amount of knowledge in our life at that time. Not only is this nothing that we can boast in, but it also means that, we have, that what we have is not necessarily what someone else currently has. So we have no right to belittle them for their place in life. If we understand it is all from God, we should honor and love those who are in a different place in their life and understanding, not be haughty and prideful against them. As we find in Scripture, 
My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Another way we can manifest humility in our life is by holding a lack of trust in our own heart and ways and declaring complete dependency upon God for all things. It is to be in agreement with Jeremiah when we are told the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It is knowing better than to depend on one's own understanding and guidance, knowing that one's self and one's feelings cannot always be trusted and are, not, and are often wrong. It is seeking to not be led by our own understanding, but to seek more and more the dependence of God. Jeremiah elsewhere warns, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. These are but merely gifts from God and not something that men ought to brag or be haughty about. If God has blessed someone with these types of gifts, they should see them as the gifts that they are. And instead of using them to boast about others, they should be using them to be a blessing to others. Jeremiah does say we can boast in this, though. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I declare... A delight declares the Lord. We should be humble creatures, understanding we are but dust, and grasp that being about able to know even the little we do know and can understand about Yahweh is a gift, a blessing, not something to be boasted over. And definitely not something that we should lord over others in God's creation who may not understand things quite in the way that we currently do. Many of us nowadays jokingly refer to what we call, and this is, I guess, started by Don, the AT&T position, meaning basically this is what I understand and believe at this present time or at this time, AT&T. If we are able to acknowledge this as we do, then we know that our AT&T position tomorrow may be different because God is always revealing and giving us better understanding. So in knowing this, how can we fight and belittle others and think that they have to be on the exact same place in understanding as us? Why can we not be patient and loving instead? understanding we are in a different place of thought. Another way that we can find humility manifesting itself is a total renouncing of anything good coming from ourselves and understanding that all glory goes to God for all things. Now, this one is not too hard for those of us who come from the Reformed heritage of theology since we trust in a sovereign God for all things, even salvation, as well as those things that many attribute in part to man's good uh, and, you know, his ability, his good and his ability. But see, now, my pride and arrogance can even come through in by what I just said. It can come off as sounding like I just placed those who are in a Reformed understanding as being on a higher platform of theological uh, thought, knowledge, and glory. And then I am considering those, I am considering the Reformed people more favorable than those pitiful souls who are deceived into believing that they have a free will and they can surprise or work with God in their salvation. See, I just did it again. It's, it's not hard to see that, you know, you feel like you're in a better place than them. Now, we all come from different backgrounds, different places in life, 
and life events that the Lord has brought us through. We're all at different places in our lives and understanding, and therefore we ought to be more patient and loving towards others, period. But instead, we tend to think that we can glory a little in what we know, what we have studied, what we understand, and we let pride do the rest to reveal our knowledge to others. Remember what Paul said, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It appears to be part of our fallen human nature that may be causing us to so easily fall prey to our pride and arrogance, thinking we have done and accomplished what we have and what we know and everything. Even the early Israelites were warned of this type of attitude as they were being led through the promised land. God had them dependent on him for 40 years while he worked on their hearts. In the end, he predicted that their nature would lead them to forget him. They were warned, saying, to remember all that God had done so that once you've received the land, built your houses, etc., that you would not claim it was all done by your hand. They are warned, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives the power, gives you power to get wealth. Yet another way humility may manifest itself is when you receive and respect God's word and when we respond to it properly. This goes back to what we opened up with and what Mike had originally mentioned about how we need to spend more time letting God's word work on us, not to be used by us for what we perceive to be a benefit to others. Instead of saying, hey, so-and-so could sure be used here in this scripture, we need to instead be considering how we need to hear this scripture in our lives. I think as Christians, we need to seek to let God work in our lives more and more, reforming us, changing us, causing us to be humbler and more loving before we ever even try to share it with others. Do we take God's word very seriously? I know I struggle with this often, especially when catching up on my daily reading. It's easy to just read to read, not to be reverent before the word or take it very seriously. I also know that the majority of verses I end up highlighting in my Bible are not necessarily things that touch or relate to me, but tend to be key theological defense points that I want to have quick access to later. Also worth considering is how do we approach his word when we hear it? When we go to hear a message from God's word, are we listening intently? Are we being reverent? Or are we constantly checking our phone or watches waiting for the end? Is sitting under the teaching of God's word just a weekly duty? Or is it a time we seek to have the Lord speak to us to humble, him, to humble us before him? Each week as we enter in before the Lord's presence to hear his word spoken to us, do we take any kind of steps to prepare ourselves in spirit or our hearts for that meeting? Do we prayerfully enter in seeking to be changed, to be molded more into Christ's image, to be spoken to about in things in our lives that need addressed? Do we come to the throne with boldness yet in Christ, yet still maintaining a sense of fear and trembling, knowing we're coming before the Lord Most High who holds our very next breath in his hand? In other words, do we ultimately view the word of God as a tool in our belt of apologetics to use in defense of the faith against false teachers, or do we honor it, tremble before it, and seek to have it change us first and foremost? Christianity is in great need to, uh, of a reformation on, personal, on a personal level, that's for sure. These are the types of things and approaches that we can take to strive for. There are, these are the types of things we can take to strive for biblical humility. Then, when humility becomes a character trait of the Christian, what kinds of lifestyle choices and actions might we see becoming more evident? What might humility look like in real life? 
Now, these are the types of things that need to be more and more evident in the life of Christians, but tend to be extremely lacking. These are the things we need more of in the body of Christ today if we expect to ever be an influence to the world around us. The humble person won't seek to be selfish, greedy, or seek to be honored over others. James tells us people, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For, these jealous, for, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This, like jealousy and selfish ambition, are traits that seek to glorify self and not glorify God or others as he instructs. We cannot really claim to love God and seek to give him glory if we are continually coveting what others have or what we can do for our own gain, especially if that gain is at the expense of others. This goes for people in the church. I have personally known those who have wanted to be someone in some position, in some authority, to be known, stand out as a leader or a teacher. They have did all that they could to stand out, to draw attention to themselves. Rather than humbly serving and waiting for the day when others take note and recognize their talents, instead they push to get attention for themselves. It seems even John had a similar situation in the church at his time with a certain leader named Diotrephes, or however his name is, Dio, we'll call him Dio, who caused, other, who caused others problems. But one of his issues was, I have written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. This guy obviously wanted to be considered first and foremost, and acknowledged as a special leader of that group, even ignoring the authority of the apostles and spiritual heads that were greater than him in the faith. James goes on to mention that this guy was, taking, was talking not, wicked nonsense about them, showing that he was, uh, he was being slanderous, and, uh, and being that way was showing that obviously he was uh, stemming from pride in his life. When we slander each other, it tends to be an attempt to make others appear, to make ourselves appear better than others. This man was not only doing that, but James speaks of him not welcoming the brothers and kicking people out of the church who were doing so. He was being somewhat tyrannical to the congregation. Sadly, we've heard stories about things like that, these small uh, stories about leaders in the modern church, leaders who center everything around them, their wants, their needs, their truth that they've taken their church body into more of a cultish position and is very far from the biblical mandates for the church and its leaders. And then when these types of church leaders are exposed and it becomes headline news, the scandal brings much shame to the body and name of Christ. Making a name for yourself, bringing attention to yourself, or striving to be considered higher than others is the opposite of humility. We do better to heed what we read in Proverbs 27. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Another way humility can be evident is if we are not being a show-off. When we are not doing things or looking, when we are, yeah, when we are not doing things or looking certain ways in order to draw attention to ourselves or to grab the spotlight. Corinthians speaks of love not bragging or being arrogant. Paul exhorts women in this area in 1 Timothy saying, likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Women, like men, should concentrate more on their inner character and godliness, not, 
not seeking to appear a certain way to outwardly oppress others around them. Now this is not to say that we that it should be looked at as necessarily wrong for a man or a woman to fix their hair or to dress up or you know to have nice clothes or whatever. It doesn't mean that we should always walk around looking frumpy as some religious sects may teach. The issue is more about the intent of why we are doing what we are doing. Is this being done to impress others? Is it being done on the basis of our acceptance and our importance to others? If so, then it could be an issue of pride and arrogance that needs addressed. A humble person, on the other hand, will dress in such a way as to not necessarily bring attention to themselves. This is a kind of consistent message we find in Scripture, and we find Peter basically saying the same to his readers. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold and jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God, in God's sight is very precious. Another way that we can be ostentatious, aside from just our outward appearance, is to draw attention to ourselves through outward acts, like the Pharisees were condemned for in Matthew 6. Yeshua said to his followers that they should not be like the Pharisees, saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Well, this is pretty strong language, saying that if you do these things, you'll get no reward, most likely. Now, how that really looks in real time, I'm not sure, but it doesn't quite sound that appealing, honestly. And while we clearly are to practice our righteousness before men daily, the rebuke is given because of the intent for which it is done. Obviously, the Lord takes these types of things serious, as, as we should too. The whole point is to examine and watch the intent of why we do things. If we pray long and majestic prayers, not only in public, do we pray long majestic prayers only in public and not in our closets? Then we, if so, we need to examine our motives. If we read our Bible mostly while among the company of others and not privately, then we may need to examine our motives. If we are charitable and helpful to people, but only when others are watching, then we might need to check our motives. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. By spirits here, it is understood to mean the motive, the inward driving factor to our actions. We think we do good in our actions, but God knows the motives, and we should too. Pride can easily sneak in and make us think higher of ourselves and of our own actions, but we must fight against that and strive for true humility. Another sign of humility, and this is also harking back to where we had started off, is that a humble person will not be aggressive and contentious against others. Again, like the way we deal with each other on social media is a fine example. Arrogance, harsh language, and name-calling against others can be a sign of pride, not love, as we are commanded. It is then like a fire. The ignition from one person can spark the passions of another, who quickly fires back in pride, and before you know it, the flames are burning strong with blow after blow from each party involved. We do well to heed Proverbs and not be like the worthless man, for a worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. It is so easy to do, to fight fire with fire to push back against arrogance with more arrogance, 
These days I have to constantly stop myself, bite my tongue, and move along when I see these kind of posts that can get me going. Occasionally I scan through a conversation on Facebook, for instance, and I see a discussion on something I'm fairly well versed in. And I notice the error of somebody saying something really stupid. And I'm ready to pounce to defend the faith. But if I do, I know that it would be near impossible to restrain myself from coming across as arrogant and demeaning because obviously our posts don't have any kind of tone to them. So almost anything you say is going to be taken the wrong way. Instead, I move along without engaging. I know I have to, a disposition to want to push back, to belittle and fight. So until I can control myself better and have a control over my pride, I will just continue to move on. Recalling the words of Paul to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Our words to each other, regardless of the circumstances, should be kind and soothing, loving, lovingly teaching our understanding, and not aggravated and scornful against others. They should be an effort for unity, not anger and division. A humble person seeks peace and to be an encouragement, not to be a troublemaker. As Peter exhorts, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble spirit. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For those who study the scripture more deeply, like preterists, for instance, I think it becomes too easy to read the scripture and focus on theological talk and issue while glossing over the applicational portions the character traits that are being exhorted by the writers. At least I know that can be the case for me at times. And I think that is what hit me when Mike made the comment he made. It made me think about how often I read simply to apply something, how often I read to apply something to myself and not just read to learn something deeper than normal that I can use later. Plus, it can be easy to use the audience relevance rule at times to rule out application to us at all. Sure, Paul and Peter may have been addressing specific problems in their time, things unrelated to us today, but their guidelines and instructions on how Christians should act and live are not usually applicable to just that situation of their time. They often contain examples which are a general rule that we all can and should gain from in the way that we should live. The the turn-the-other-cheek example is often lost on people today. If someone wrongs us, we are quick to retaliate in word or deed. Our pride is too strong to allow us to take the blow maybe many more blows if need be. So we push back and we fight back instead. We find it hard to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to give up our coat also. While we are quick to study and understand what these types of idioms and metaphors meant in the original language and to the original hearers, how often do we stop and meditate on how they can be applied to us in our daily lives? How often do we read them and then seek to find ways to apply them to the position, to different portions of our lives and to force us to live in a way that seeks to align more closely with these traits. And what about when it comes to someone offering up biblical reproofs or rebukes? Are we open and willing to lovingly accept them as if they are coming from the Lord? Or do, we make, do they make us swell up and want to give excuses and defend ourselves? The humble person would graciously, graciously listen and take the constructive criticism with thanksgiving, knowing that God has graciously led this person to come and help. <clears throat> Are we a wise man, as Proverbs tells us? Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to the wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. A humble person takes no offense. 
but in fact welcomes constructive criticism and uses it to correct where he may have gone off course. A prideful person will, not, will, will get offended, make excuses, and will do all that they can to make themselves look better in the end. The proud will rarely ever admit to mistakes or ask for forgiveness. They will trivialize the bad things that they have done while exaggerating the things done to them. As we have seen, God resists the proud, and the Bible has much to say against this type of pride that is so easy for us to fall, easy for us to fall into. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And what do we have to pride in or boast about anyway when all such things come from God to begin with? People may have confidence in something that they have studied and understand, but to push it upon others in a prideful manner is uncalled for. Don't confuse pride with confidence. Confidence in talents and abilities is not a bad thing, but desiring to always get notice for those talents and abilities is where pride comes in to tarnish the good gifts that God has given. The big problem is pride is such a strong trait for our sinful hearts to overcome, and we must be on the lookout for when confidence starts to convert to pride. Our confidence and pride, if we even want to call it that, should be in Christ and Christ alone. We can do all things through him, and apart from him we can do nothing, and yet we are constantly falling prey to our sinful hearts and letting pride and arrogance take over, and we make ourselves miss the mark on how the Bible says we, as Christians, are to be living. Now, a lot of what I'm saying this morning is painting with the big brush, and yes, there are those people out there who uh, are very loving and do not engage in this type of behavior. The thing is, you don't know about them because they don't engage in this type of behavior. So, I don't know any of those people. Of course, I don't see anybody in this room that I've ever seen arguing online, so you guys are good. But there's some people out there, and you just see them coming, and you're like, I don't even, just walk away. So anyway, uh, with this kind of online behavior, if, you know, if you are one of them, then consider this as a reminder of your Christian duty to love and honor others. For a good majority of others out there, myself included, this is a struggle, and recognizing the struggle is a big part of the battle. I used to enjoy a good social media debate, but now more and more these days I pass right on by. I rarely even read more than a comment or two before hightailing it out of there. I know where it will lead. I know what it will do to me. I know how it makes me feel emotionally and even physically with the stress and the tension, just waiting for that next comment to come on so I can smash it back down. And then I also know that it rarely accomplishes anything when you get involved in those. We have to realize when it comes to the overall history of the church, the full preterist position is fairly new, especially to a modern church congregation these days. Shoot, it is still fairly new to most of us. And there are still pieces and parts that we're all working through in our understanding. There are a lot of different people working on all kinds of different angles. And it is a topic of study that has taken many of us down many varying paths to be where we are today. Not everyone is on the same page in their studies at all. There are aspects of it that I thought I knew, held as truth and argued for in the recent past, but that I no longer hold the same view that I did, to back, that I did back then. We read, we learn, we get more insight. God grants additional understanding. So we're always reforming our lives on many of these doctrinal aspects. Any Christian who feels they have made it to a point in their life where they understand it all as much as they are ever going to is simply fooling themselves or they're content to just not learn anything. So that, being, so that being the case, if we can admit that we're always updating our views on various doctrines, then there should never be a time when we feel that we know it flawlessly 
And surely we understand that it took us a long time to get where we are today. So why, why would we even ever want to berate or belittle or argue aggressively with other brothers in Christ? Maybe that person is where we were a few years ago in their understanding. Or maybe they are where we'll be in the near future. So why should we take a hard, aggressive stance to the point of anger instead of love? Why should a Christian ever resort to name-calling or belittling others in a discussion at all? These are unbiblical traits for a Christian, something to be despised and worked against in our lives. So, the dilemma for the preterists, or the Christian in general, comes down to a need for self-examination with regards to the intent of our actions in our lives that will help decide if we are ever to ready to, for the task of engaging each other in this type of discussion to begin with, or if we are better off just keeping quiet and working on ourselves. Do we have total control over our hearts, pride, and tongue that the, this, that the Scripture discusses? Can we seriously discuss and reason together in a loving and humble way, taking into account the attitudes and conditions that we, we've brought up today? If so, then great. That is how Christianity should look. Our conversations with each, with each other should always show the love and the honor of others that we are supposed to have as Christians. But if, in fact, we are reading and studying things like eschatology for the purpose of simply being able to defend our position more strongly against others and not first for our own spiritual growth and change, then there may be a serious problem with the heart. We need to focus on our first love that we may have been leaving behind. More and more, I feel there is a great need in Christendom, and especially in preterist circles at times, to study and read with the desire to first and foremost bring us closer to God and to be more like Yeshua as the scripture mandates in our own lives. In the meantime, we should humbly stay away from heated discussions and arguments until we have taken the time to seriously work on softening our own hearts and increasing our humility before others. God took his people through the desert for 40 years working to humble their hearts. Have we spent any time letting him work on ours? On the surface and to the world around us, watching these things, Christianity appears, appears to be a far cry from the instruction and descriptions given in Scripture. Once God has changed our prideful passions, and once we feel an overwhelming humility before God and man, then we may better be prepared to be used by God in a loving and teaching capacity to share the truths that he has revealed to us. And may that be what we strive for. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this whole time we're here, for the love and the, the conversation and just everything that we have here. We just pray, Lord, that you would bless these uh, last few hours we have together with just increased love and fellowship. We thank you so much for your word. May it be used to change us, to make us more like the way that you would have us to be. Help us to love one another, Lord, to be on the lookout for ways that we can honor others, for ways that we can be humble and just to raise others up. We thank you so much for these blessings. Amen.